like what I see in the mirror always, but I like the fact that things keep changing. We get new opportunities. Last week, we were only two days past Christmas, and I put that in quotes, in the sense that Christmas is never over, it always is, if you will. But looking back on Christmas, I asked the question in the title of last week's message, looking back at Bethlehem, so what? That was the question, so what? And I suggested that the so what was answered in John the first chapter and the 14th verse. I'd like just to go back and just touch on that for just a moment. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to John the first chapter, what we call the prologue. It'll be up on the screen. And listen to the verse, what it says. This is John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I suggested last week that the so what of Bethlehem was that grace and truth, grace and truth came with skin on it. That in fact those two things are the things that are essential for every healthy relationship. Friendships don't work, marriages don't work, businesses don't work, unless you have those two things uh, I think in full force, not just balanced, but in fact, if those two things are present. This week, instead of looking back to Bethlehem, I want to stand at Bethlehem and look forward and ask this question. Now what? Last week was so what? This week is now what? Where do we go from here? What, what does Bethlehem mean? How does grace and truth work? And what can we expect? I would suggest to you or submit to you this morning that at Bethlehem, Everything changes. Everything changes. The closest metaphor that I could get would be World War II. World War II was the most devastating war that has ever been fought on this planet. At the end of five years of carnage, estimates vary, but somewhere between 60 and 70 million people on this planet had died. Two-thirds of them were civilian casualties. If you go to the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C., you will see stars representing 416,000 deaths among American troops, not counting all of our allies and all of that. But if within World War II there could be a metaphor for Bethlehem, I would say it would be D-Day in Europe. June the 6th, 1944. It was on that day that the largest armada in the history of the world was put together by Allied forces in the English Channel and they were approaching the beaches of Normandy on the coast of France. Young German man said when he woke up that morning, a German soldier, and by that time the Germans were using 13 and 14 year, old, year olds in their troops. He said, when I got up that morning and looked out on the English Channel as far as the eye could see I saw ships. 5,000 ships, it was, as far as the eye could see. Maybe no day in our nation's last hundred years captures the resolve of a people like D-Day in Operation Overlord. German armies held most of Europe. Unbelievable fortifications had been erected. And when Allied troops began to land, we had never seen anything like it. Andy Rooney, that some of you know, was kind of the old curmudgeon with the eyebrows on 60 Minutes. 
was a young reporter, a young journalist, who landed on Utah Beach three days after D-Day. This is what he said. There have been only a handful of days since the beginning of time on which the direction of the world was, was taking has been changed for the better in one 24-hour period by an active man. June 6, 1944 was one of them. What the Americans, the British, and the Canadians were trying to do was get back a whole continent that had been taken from its rightful owners and whose citizens had been taken captive by Adolf Hitler's German army. Listen to this piece. It was one of the most monumentally unselfish things one group of people ever did for another. I would submit that Bethlehem is the most monumentally unselfish thing that God the Creator could ever do for humankind. He goes on to say, if you're young and not really clear what D-Day was, let me tell you it was a day unlike any other. I landed on Utah Beach several days after the first assault on the morning of June 6th. I'm uncertain of the day. And when I came in, row on row of dead American soldiers were laid out on the sand just above the high tide mark where the beach turned into weedy clumps of grass. They were covered with olive drab blankets, just their feet sticking out at the bottom, their GI boots sticking out. I remember the boots, all the same, different men. After the second service last week, we were down here at the front with the prayer team and we had been meeting and talking and praying with folks. And when everybody had left, there was an older gentleman standing there. He was from out of state visiting friends. And uh, he asked for prayer. And uh, I noticed that he had a cap that said World War II in his hands. I said, were you there? He said, yep. I said, where? He said, Normandy. He said, I came in three days after Normandy, just like Andy Rooney. And he said, the thing I remember, well, I asked him, I said, would you have chance for coffee? Anytime this week, are you going to be here? He said, I would. And so I took my three sons-in-law and my son, and we went to Loodles over in Windsor, that coffee shop. And I'm not getting any money for saying that. I'm just saying where we went. <laughs> and we met and sat and talked to Felix for an hour and 15 minutes and just said, tell us what it was like. Tell us about it. And how he described landing on Utah Beach was exactly what Andy Rooney says here. I don't think people of my generation, I was born three months after Pearl Harbor. I don't think I and those younger than I can fully grasp the impact of what our parents' generation experienced in World War II. Or had it not been for people like these who landed on their beach, on the beach, 60,000 in those days landed. Within three months of that landing, 800,000 men came through Utah Beach on their way through France toward Germany. I don't think we have any idea. I have some idea, but we can't fully grasp the magnitude of that. It happened to be that Felix was in the last service, and I asked him to stand, and he did this, this morning, and I asked if there were others who had been in the Second World War. I just, just for a moment, is there any, are there any folks here who were in that battle, not specifically in Normandy, but in World War II, Anybody here this morning, could you just stand? Anybody who's in that age category, where do we have somebody standing? Right here. 
Here's one. Let's thank this back there. So back over there too. That isn't about nostalgia. If you were to go to France or Holland or Belgium today and meet people in their late 70s or 80s or 90s and tell them you're an American, many of them would hug your neck, contrary to what they say about Europeans and Americans. They'd hug your neck because those folks in that age group know what, it's, what it feels like to be set free. They know what it feels like to be liberated. They know what it likes, it's like to be enslaved and scared out of your mind and starving and have somebody give you food in a candy bar and hug you. They know what that feels like. And so when you come to Bethlehem, it's the beginning of the end for the enemy's work. It's God throwing down the gauntlet and saying, enough already. We are going to pay, take back territory wrongly claimed. We are going to, to do a thing that changes everything. So what can I expect out of Bethlehem? I can expect a way through life. I can expect a way out of things. I can expect change. Not necessarily change in circumstances. Not necessarily change in the stuff around me. But I can expect changes in me. In us. Just some thoughts about change. If Bethlehem is our spiritual D-Day. If that's what it is. Just some thoughts on change. First of all, God is eternal and unchangeable. I believe that from reading this book. That he's eternal and unchangeable. But I'm not. I'm changeable. And I'm certainly not eternal. I go on from here forever, but I certainly don't go backwards forever. I have a friend in Washington, D.C. who's an old Montana rancher. Came to D.C. 35 years ago. We were talking a few years back. And he said, Dick, you know, I was talking to the Lord a few weeks ago. And, and God said to me, Fred, one of us has got to change. I love that. We must change. The fact is we're designed for it. Physically, we're designed for it. Physically, we're dynamic people. You will, your heart will beat 103,000 plus beats today. You will inhale and exhale 23,000 plus times today. While you're sitting here, the blood is racing through your body. It takes 20 seconds to get from your heart to your toe. I, you know, I, I read that on Google. I believe it's true. You know, that's just how it is. That's, I mean, it's just in every cell. You've got billions of cells in your body. They're all being laved by fresh blood. So inside your bones, red corpuscles are being made in there where they're storing calcium and phosphorus and all that stuff. And the red corpuscles come out and they go racing through your bodies. And they're taking nutrients to all the cells. You're changing. And they're taking new, they're taking Twinkies and Fritos and all. They're taking that and they're, and they're picking up the garbage bags and bringing it back and scrubbing up on the organs and going back to the lungs. And so even as we sit here, we're changing. The bones in your body are not just rigid structures that are dead. They're living things. All of your bones, I believe this is correct, will be replaced within seven years. New bones being created. We change even as we sit here. My thought about change is that I'd like I'd like the other guy to change. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'd like you to change. I, some of us got married and we had the, you know, we said, well, we got a couple little issues with our spouse to be, but we could change that. <laughs> I have a question for you this morning. How's it going? 
Not so good. You don't even have to answer. I can tell you. That doesn't work. You might get changed by marriage, but rarely are you going to change that other person. That rarely, if it happens, it happens over time and not because you beat on it. Bethlehem speaks to not any old change. It speaks to change at the heart of things. Some years ago, Western Electric went to a place called Hawthorne and they did some experiments with light. And they changed the elevation, the lumens in a room, to see if it affected productivity. And they found that when they changed the light, productivity went up. They found that if they painted a wall a different color, productivity went up. They changed the furniture around. They found that if they came back and painted the wall the same color it was originally, the productivity went up. They call it the Hawthorne effect. It's an interesting thing. But Bethlehem is not just about any old change. It's not about tweaking the edges or nudging the boundaries. It has to do with the profound core of me. Now, some changes are absolutely dramatic. I love drama. I love those movies you watch that just make you sob at the end. Not just the, the soft and gushy one, you know, not that. But I mean just the true stories that have powerful endings and all of that stuff. I love that. Listen to this story. Some of you know this. Many of you know this. John, the ninth chapter. There's this wonderful story about a person that Jesus meets who's been born blind. And you've heard me talk about this before. It's not just that his eyes don't work. His brain doesn't work. He's not, he doesn't have the stuff that, that is supposed to happen when you're just a little infant. It didn't get wired right. And Jesus does this unique thing. He spits on the ground, makes mud balls, sticks them in the guy's eye, and says, go wash. And the man was healed. Listen to how it reads in uh, John, the ninth chapter, verse 7. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. Here is a person who has always had to have help. Here is a person who feels along the walls in his particular community so he knows where he is. Here is a person who has sat much of his adult life begging and probably his young life as well. And all of a sudden, he's never seen color. He has no sense of proportion or dimension. He doesn't know what a human face looks like except by touching it. And all of a sudden, he can see. About 13 years ago, I had LASIK surgery on my eyes. I have a friend who's an ophthalmologist and said, I'd like to do this. And I'm saying, shoot, free. Let's do that. So he fixed my eyes and I walked out after 30 minutes. Some of you experienced this. I was very nearsighted. I walked out and I started reading license plates. I was thrilled to be able to read license plates on cars without glasses. And for weeks afterwards, I'd be driving with Ruth down the street and say, you know, what, Ruthie, you want to know what gas prices are in the next block? She said, no, I'm sick of hearing what gas prices are. But it was like you could see some stuff. And here is a person who has a totally different sense of proportion, of balance. He doesn't have to locate sounds just by turning his head, but in fact his eyes assist him. And he's walking apparently with a whole new gait. He didn't have a gait before. He kind of shuffled and felt, and now he's striding down the street. And somebody says, isn't that the guy? He said, no, that's not the guy. He's a totally, totally profound change in this man's 
life. I would submit to you that when Jesus shows up, his transcendent eternal character changes whatever he touches, changes whatever he speaks to, changes whomever he spends time with. The Gospels have story after story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record story after story of profound changes in people's lives. And some of them are uh, different than others. Uh, but, but those physical healings, we need to understand this, that the physical healings in Scripture are transient. They don't last. The blind guy dies. The leper that's healed of the terrible disease, sooner or later he dies. The profound change that happens, however, when someone's heart is changed forever. That is the most impressive miracle of all. Sometimes it comes in an encounter. Zacchaeus, the little short guy up a tree and out on a limb. Some, many of you know that story. And Jesus goes to his house and he, it changes how he sees himself. Jesus' interaction with him changes how he sees Jesus. It changes how he sees people and it changes how he sees money. Just like that, just in an hour or however long it was. Now, others take longer. The disciples hung out with Jesus three years, and by the end of three years, they still didn't get it. It took the day of Pentecost, the resurrection, all of that, for it to be, to connect for them. So some changes in our lives, even from the inside out, many of them are incremental. Sometimes so minute we can hardly tell it. Other times we feel like we make great leaps forward. But when you look at human history and talk about leaders that help change people's lives, I could, I could introduce you to some folks, wonderful people, who in their talking and in their presentation could change your opinion about things. They changed mine. Some of them could even help change my convictions about some things. But none of them, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Mother Teresa, you name them, none of them can change the human heart forever, except one. This Jesus of Nazareth. I love how E. Stanley Jones, the old Methodist preacher in India, said it. He said, people keep looking for a new leader and a new world order. And they meet both in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the only leader in history that can change the human heart forever. Paul the Apostle captures this idea of profound change I think very uh, specifically and meaningfully in Romans, the 12th chapter. If you have your Bibles, some of you know this, this text by heart. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 reads this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Here's the phrase. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love how Paul uses language. He's very specific in the language he uses. The word to conform is the root word from which we get schematic or scheme. The original word is schema. It's Some of you are in the electrical business and you draw schematics of where the wiring should go and the switches and the plugs and all that kind of stuff. It's the shape of where things should go. 
That's the word Paul uses to say, don't let the world shape you by its ideas, by its attitudes, by its information. I mean, we are getting information and pressure and sales and marketing from every source. Even as I sit here, some of you are getting scores from the games that are going on, even as we speak. And texting, he said, I know, I found you. It's all right. You could just go with it. But the, but the fact is, but the fact is, we get, we're inundated in our day by all of these things that are mind shapers. They shape attitudes about things that matter and count. J.B. Phillips, the pastor in London after the Second World War, who paraphrased scriptures for young men and women coming back from the battle so they could better understand the text, said this. He, he paraphrased this text this way. Do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold. And Paul says, but be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transform comes from the root word metamorphosis. It's the kind of change that occurs when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It has to do with infrastructure. Conform, schema, means you just work on the outside and you shape things the way you want it to go. Transform means that something substantive and permanent, life-changing, is happening from the inside out. And he goes on to say, by the renewing of your mind. There are two words for new in the New Testament. One means new, it's recent. That is, I just got a brand new car. It came off the assembly line in Detroit or in South Carolina or Tennessee, one of those places. Brand new. The other word means that it's new in character. Something substantive is changed. And Paul says, whatever change happens... Do not let it be just the stuff that tweaks and works the edges that takes you a wrong direction. But let your whole life be transformed from the inside out. Bit by bit, like we talked last week when we shared the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. As you are loved long time by a little kid, the Velveteen Rabbit says, you become real. I know this isn't a word, but when grace and truth, truth from Bethlehem invades my life, when I am receptive to the grace of God and the truth of God, no matter how challenging it might be. Sometimes truth caresses us. Sometimes it um, convinces us. Sometimes it convicts us. And sometimes it pinions us to the wall. I don't want to hear that about me. Or I don't want to, I don't want to really hear that about God because that changes how I see him. I want him, I want him to be a certain way. But in fact, he stands apart from us in the best sense of that word. So that we have some sense of what we might be in him. When we allow that to happen in our lives, profound things happen. When we open ourselves and accept and embrace God's grace and truth, the armies of heaven hit the beaches in our lives. It's D-Day all over again. All bets are off. Liberation is coming. That's how it works. Sometimes when I start following Jesus, I give him my, my whole life. I say, okay, here's all I know of me. I give to all, all I know of you. That's as good a start as any. And as we grow with him and walk with him, he starts pointing out areas in my life that only he can help me change. I've tried to change it a hundred times. But he says, let me, let me help you with that. Let me show you how that works. When we decide for grace and truth, our spirits are transformed. Let me put it this way, and this is a note for your bulletin. When we decide for grace and truth, change happens. When we decide for grace and truth, 
change happens. Let me be very clear here. I am not asking you to change. I'm not trying to convince you to change. What I am saying is I'm not asking you to decide to change. I'm asking that we decide every day, and I'm talking to myself here. I don't know if you get that, but I'm talking to myself. That we decide every day for grace and truth in our lives. If we go there, change happens on the backstroke. Change is the result. If you aim for change, I would bet money if I were a betting man that it will not happen the way you hope it would. But if you go for grace and truth, change happens in ways that you never dreamed could happen. Forget or forgive the cheesy way that I'm about to say this, okay? This is New Year's weekend, 2010. I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions here. I'm talking about New Year's revolution. I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf. I'm talking about turning over a new life. I'm talking about something so fundamental that people, when they see us, say, there's something different about you. Is it your hair? You're doing your hair? No, no, that's not it. It's something different in how you think and how you comport yourself. and how you. It's just something different. Two years ago, Ruth and I were invited back to the 40th anniversary of a church in Urbana, Illinois. We had been privileged to be church planters with a group of friends back in 1966 in that community. Not unlike this community, it's the home of the University of Illinois. About the same size community in a lot of ways. Farmlands, corn, soybeans, all that. And then this Athens, if you will, this university in the middle of it. And it was a wonderful time from 1966 to 1978. Incredible things were happening in our country. Some tragic things were happening in our country. But it was in those days, in those late 60s and early 70s, where, you know, it was hippie days. It was places, you'd, you'd go down the interstates and you'd pick up hitchhikers and they'd have flowers in their hair and guitars on their back. Some of you remember that. Some of you were. You were there. I picked you up. I know. I, <laughs> we were looking for peace and love and nirvana and all kinds of stuff going on. I walked into that meeting place for the 40th anniversary and this 50-something-year-old man walked up to me and put his, heart, his arms around me and said, Dick Foth, I love you. I just drove five hours to say thank you. And I'm thinking, who is that? And then I recognized who it was. I'll call him Bill. I remember Bill. First time I met him, we had this smaller, certainly a smaller place than this, but there were all these university students and all these people. It was a young congregation. I was young. I was like 25 or something. And, and he was sitting on the floor right there. There wasn't enough space in the seats. And then sitting on the floor and he had overalls and no shoes. He's barefoot. And he had long hair that came all the way down. I think he was a doper and his dad was a professor at the university. And he, and he was And somewhere along the line, Bethlehem showed up. Somewhere along the line, Grace and truth powered into his life. And he received it in a way that changed him from the inside out. And he wasn't just saying thank you to me. He was saying thank you to the Lord. and Because there were a lot of people involved in his life, not just me. That's how it works. Not just about one contact or one person, is it? It's about this whole this thing where we're in the family together. 
He's a pediatrician in Michigan today. But he's not just any old pediatrician. He's a grace and truth transformed Bethlehem kind of pediatrician who was changed from the inside out, who looks to Jesus for direction and, and loves him every day. Paul again captures it in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, when he says it this way. He says, for the foolishness of God, verse 25, 1 Corinthians, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, this world, and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Remember where you were and who you were when you were called. Some of you are sitting here today, January 2010, and you look back and you say, I can't believe the difference between January 2010 and January 2007. I was in such a different place. Well, I don't mean I was in Phoenix. I was in such a different place inside some of you if I'd have met you five years ago in a Starbucks someplace and say and we were talking and we start talking about Jesus or something you just laughed me out of Starbucks but somewhere along the line Jesus came blasting into your life on D-Day Bethlehem time and you sit here today and you can't believe you're sitting here you can't believe the transformation and the change that has occurred in such a short time. Some of you look back on January 2009 and can't believe that you're sitting where you are today. Because his transformation is so powerful and so complete. He didn't just have you change systems. Jesus didn't go to Bethlehem to make us Western American Christians. Jesus went to Bethlehem so that we could be new creations from the inside out without baggage of culture and, and we always have to keep working on that but the fact is that's what he did think of what you were when you were called his ways are so different than my ways and the more I listen to him and the more I read him the more profoundly I'm challenged by his truth in my life I love it when Paul says that uh, God's foolishness or, or man's best thought is, is lower than God's foolishness. For many years, I would drive down Constitution Avenue in Washington, D.C., toward the Capitol. And when you come across the Potomac and drive that way, over on the right is the Lincoln Memorial, and there's the Vietnam War Memorial. And up 22nd Street is the State Department. But on this corner of 22nd and Constitution Avenue, there's a big bronze statue, a seated bronze statue of a man sitting in front of the National Academy of Sciences, and it's Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was one of the most brilliant people that has ever been on the planet in many ways. But whenever I would drive by the statue, and we always love to go there and take our friends, sit on his lap, take pictures and stuff. Whenever I would drive by that, I would think 
that Einstein's highest and best thought is less than God's joke. This is the God who thinks in an entirely different way. And when you receive his thinking into your life, it starts changing you in ways you never dreamed. I close with this. I've told you this story before, but I'm going to tell it to you again because I, I like it. And it illustrates change in a way that perhaps no other thing does for me. I was this young pastor near the University of Illinois. My telephone rang on one weekday morning. I picked it up. It was a young man on the phone. He was a student at the University of Illinois. He belonged to one of the raunchiest fraternity houses at the university. I won't name it because some of you may have, you know. And, uh, but he, he, uh, he said, we had these guys come through from this group called Campus Crusade for Christ a few weeks ago. And they talked to us about Jesus. And... And we decided to follow him, and we're sensing some things going on, but they had to leave, and we don't know what to do, and we understand you work with college kids. Would you come and teach us? And so I went over there, and I wasn't much older than they were. They were like 19 and 20, and I was probably 26 or 27 or something, maybe a little older. But I, I went over, and I sat with them, and several more guys started following Jesus and some sorority sisters and stuff. Eight months later, my telephone rang again. I picked it up, and it was an older guy on the phone. And he said, uh, I believe you know my son, uh, John, at such and such a frat house. I said, yes, sir. He said, John has uh, changed dramatically in the last eight months. The way he thinks about stuff, the stuff he does or doesn't do. Is, I mean, it's just, he's a totally different kid. And he says, it's God, Mr. Foth. What do you say? And I said, I think it's God. He said, I want to talk to you. And he had this edge in his voice, and I go, oh, man. I just didn't. He said, why don't you come to our house for dinner? Well, when you put food in the equation, <laughs> like everything changes. Like fear runs out the door when you put fried chicken on the table. I went to his house, and I'm driving to his house, and I'm having these thoughts. Because some of you know that when I was younger, from age 5 to almost age 30, I was, uh, I was a stutterer. Sometimes stuttering so profoundly I could hardly put sentences together. And here I am, this little pipsqueak preacher that stutters. And I'm going to the home of this guy. Well, this guy, the guy's dad, was a full professor of journalism at the University of Illinois. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning author in the early 60s. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Pete's sake. He was a political cartoonist for the Boston Globe newspaper, and he was a Harvard fellow. That means he's real smart. And it's like the Lord is saying, why don't we take the, like the, the stuttering guy and we'll put him over here with the Pulitzer Prize winning author and see how that works. That would be good. He's got this great sense of humor. He takes the lesser things and puts them with the noble things and says, let me show you how I work. Let me show you how I think. We had a lovely dinner, sat down. The man is there, his wife is there, the young man is there. We start talking, and he says, tell me about this God that ostensibly has changed John's life. I call him Jeff. I said, well, Jeff, he's the God who is. I am that I am. I am the God who creates. I am the God who is. I am the God who provides. I am the God who heals. I am the God who cares. I am. And he just, after about 20 minutes, I said um, I, I knew I needed to ask him a question, and I said, uh, <clears throat> would you, uh, I was nervous, I said, would you like to know this God? 
And he didn't bat an eye. He looked at me and said, yes, I would. I said, you would. He said, yes, I would. He said, how do I do that? And I said, scripture says you just ask him. The one prayer that God answers, saint or sinner, is God help me. My friend John Ogilvie says. He said, how would I do that? I said, well, we just talk to him like I'm talking to you, except you can't see him. Would you like me to help you with that? I said, why don't I phrase some thoughts that I think you're feeling? And he said, okay. And I said, you just repeat out loud after me. I said, dear God, here we are. He said, dear God, here we are. You know me like the back of your hand. You know me like the back of your hand. He had great anger toward his son's generation because they had spit on everything he stood for, all of his core values. I said, God, you know my anger. God, you know my anger. You know my need. You know my need. I need your help. I need your help. I need my life to be changed. I need my life to be changed. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Make me a new guy. Make me a new guy. Amen. Amen. And I turned and looked at him, opened my eyes and looked at him. And tears were running down his face. And he wasn't looking at me. He was looking at his boy, the one who had changed so much. And he got up and headed toward his boy. And they met right in front of me and threw their arms around each other, embraced and just wept. And after a moment, a few moments, he pushed his boy away. And he looked at me and said, Dick, do you understand what's happening here tonight? And I said, I think I do, Jeff, but why don't you tell me? And then the Pulitzer Prize winning author came out. He said, I believe that 2,000 years ago, God gave his son to me. But tonight, my son gave me God. And I start bawling. I get up. You know, I, that man has gone on to be with Jesus. And as I speak, this man, now in his early 60s, the son, is a Christian counselor in a major southeastern city. It's a long way from a Pulitzer Prize to heaven. It's a long way from a raunchy fraternity house at a major university to being a counselor to free people up, to beachheads in people's lives in a large city. But the Jesus that came to Bethlehem, grace and truth with skin on him, when he did that, all bets were off. Change was coming. Starts from the inside out. And it's transformational. It's not recreational. It's not confirmational. It's not reformational. It is transformational. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? As you sit here this morning, I just want to ask you a question. Many of you have followed Jesus for many years. Some of you may never have heard of him in just this way. But wherever you are this morning, if you just are saying to yourself, you know, I, there's a place that I need to experience the grace and truth of God, a particular area in my life. He knows it. I'm acknowledging it this morning. But you just slip your hand up and say, as you close this time in prayer, would you just include me, Dick? I'm not going to ask. Yes, I see your hand. Just all across the sanctuary in the South Auditorium as well. Just raise your hand. It's not so important that I see it, but God knows this. This is an act of trust on your part. You're just trusting Him in response to the beachhead that He made in your life. Lord Jesus, here we are. How grateful we are for Bethlehem going forward. Now what? We will not focus on change. We will focus on grace and truth, on you. And we will trust you for change on the backstroke. For the one here who is ravaged by guilt, set her free in this moment. 
for the man here who is in bondage to an addiction of some kind. Set him, set him free even as we pray. For the young people here who look forward to their whole lives, may they walk in transformational truth and grace. So there it is, Lord. You knew it beforehand, but we just wanted to say it. We trust you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. That showed up at Bethlehem. And the power of his Holy Spirit that works in us every day. And the heart that you have that is changing every day. May that be expressed as light in this community today, this week, and every week of 2010 going forward. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. So there. Go in his grace. The prayer team is coming. For those of you who have need, please come and meet with the prayer team. God bless you.